Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. The kingdom of heaven is a state of consciousness. In this episode, Eckhart talks about how we define success. He asks... Do we look to the world to determine that for us? If yes, we may be heading down the wrong path because to a large extent, Eckhart says, the world is insane. He explains money, property, prestige, and power do not signify we've reached the pinnacle. He says, for the people who strive to attain these things, many say, after the initial high, comes a very emotional low. Eckhart reveals the greatest source of riches is within, and the real indicator of success is our state of consciousness. He asks, do we bring light to this world? In the Bible, Jesus described it as the kingdom of heaven. In present-day terms, Eckhart explains the kingdom of heaven is a state of consciousness. Thank you, thank you. Wonderful to be here. Thank you for waiting patiently. But in fact, most of you are enlightened or close to enlightenment, so you actually haven't been waiting for anything because you've given up waiting. (laughs) Waiting is part of the old state of consciousness. And you are all here because in you there's something new arising. We could call it presence a dimension of consciousness that is, one could say, deeper or higher than the thinking function, which is fine, but in itself, in the absence of the transcendent dimension, which is presence, the thinking function can be pretty crazy, but it can also do wonderful things. It can be destructive, and it can be wonderful, like fire, and enormous energy, or the sun, the energy of the sun. It's life-giving. It can also kill you. And thinking can do the same. You can create through thought, or you can destroy through thought. Destroy your others and yourself and the planet through dysfunctional thinking. We may be talking about that. As you might have guessed, I have no plan as such for this evening. In other words, I don't know what I am going to say exactly. And that's fine. Almost all of you are here because you are awakening or awakened Something is arising in you that is, as I said, deeper or higher than the thinking function. In some of you, it starts. It started as a slight shift in consciousness, perhaps an increasing ability to be more present, less absorbed 
in the voice in the head, less reactive in certain situations, more peaceful, not all the time perhaps, that's fine. But you are here because you are awakening beings. And the context for our gathering is the awakening of human consciousness. There may be one or two here, possibly, that are not yet awakening, which means still very much identified with the continuous stream of thinking and this identification with the continuous stream of thinking, we call that the egoic state of consciousness. That's how the ego arises through complete identification with thought. That is ego. So there may be some of you who are here and still not have not yet been able to step out of this complete identification with thinking and the emotions that go with thinking, the entire entity that makes up the personality in the absence of transcendence. And so those few of you are probably here because a friend or family member said, you must come and listen to this guy. <laughs> you really need it. And I would like to suggest that they are probably right. <laughs> so the question is whether this gathering here is going to make sense to you if you're not awakening yet. It could be a revelation that you suddenly go, oh, wow, oh, yeah, something in you recognizes the truth. Or it could be that you find it uh, increasingly irritating and ultimately unbearable to be sitting here and you start fidgeting and your mind goes what's he talking about I don't understand anything he's been talking for 10 minutes and he hasn't said anything <laughs> so the gathering is and the context for this gathering is the awakening of human consciousness the awakening have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. You awaken into presence, which is the, I sometimes call it, the transcendent state of consciousness. There are many other words you can use. The portal into 
that state of consciousness is, of course, the now. The now that is usually overlooked by most people who are still trapped completely in their minds. The now that is most of the time devalued, ignored. You want to get it out of the way as quickly as possible because you want to get to somewhere that's not the now. It's called the future, some future moment. In the meantime, at best, the now is a stepping stone towards the future moment that you're longing for. Small scale or big scale? Small scale, it's an hour from now I need to be there, waiting for this evening to do something. Or big scale, next year when this happens, then I'll, then I'll be, I'm just looking forward. In the meantime, this moment is just an irritation. <laughs> Shouldn't really be here. As I said, at best, a stepping stone to some future moment that is imagined as promising fulfillment in some way. But somehow, you'd rather be there than here. That's the underlying. I'd rather be there than here. That's a very strange thing. But it's quite normal, very normal. And then, of course, many other millions of humans, they don't just devalue the now or make it devalued into a stepping stone to the next moment and the next and the next. Many other millions of humans live in continuously almost, and this is really, really weird and insane, they live in an antagonistic relationship with the present moment, <laughs> which means most of the time they don't like it, and they'd rather be somewhere else, or rather be doing something else. They're doing it now, but I don't really want to be doing this. When you're stressed, that's a sign that you don't really want to be doing it. You'd rather be at the end of it. Stress means it's a tension between now and then. Tension between now and the then is a mental projection. The now is this. So it's a very dysfunctional state because after all, and one cannot emphasize this enough, the now is all there ever is. You cannot experience, feel, do, whatever, anything that's other than in the space of now. Everything is experienced in now. This is potentially a life-transforming truth. If you can feel the reality of it rather than use it as a mental concept, because if it's just a mental concept, then you start questioning it, of course, whether the now is really the most important thing. And then I go so far as to say, past and future actually don't exist as such. Now, the mind says, is that, that's not true. I'm going to have dinner when I get home, so obviously it exists. 
Or it said, what do you mean the past doesn't exist? I was stuck in a traffic jam an hour ago, and it exists. It, it, well, where and how does it exist? It exists as a thought. <laughs> this is difficult to question. When you start thinking about it, you can't really find an answer. This sounds very strange, paradoxical. I could say, for example, we are going to be here for an hour and a half to two hours. Who knows? It could be three, four, five, I don't know. <laughs> we are going to be here for, let's say, one and a half to two hours. True, on, on one level. But do you ever actually experience this gathering as one and a half or two hours? No, only when you start thinking about it. When you start thinking, how much longer is this person going to talk? <laughs> then you look at your, oh no. <laughs> Another hour to go. Then you can always pretend that you urgently need to go to the bathroom. You will not be judged. Most of us are close to, enlightened, to enlightenment, so we are not judging anybody. So, the strange thing, nobody has ever experienced the future except as a thought in your mind. Isn't that strange? Because when it comes, it's now. So, if we could realize the absolute importance of presence, of the now, the realization of that is not an intellectual thing. It's not an opinion or belief that you need to agree with or you disagree with it. To actually experientially verify the truth of this statement that your entire life is inseparable from the present moment or from presence of the now. It unfolds in the space of now. The rest is thought. Memories of what could say previous nows. <laughs> because when it when whatever happened, it could only have happened in the now. And when you remember it, you remember it now. So outside of the now nothing is except as a thought form. We are talking about time, because past and future are time. We cannot deny the reality of time on this level of existence, on this practical level of existence, where we move from day to day, where we do things, we meet at a particular time. We could not have met here without the help of time, because if I had said, announced on the internet at some point in the now we're going to meet we're going to all come together in Oakland in the present moment but since there's no time I will not specify when now if given unlimited time perhaps within one or two billion years we could accidentally have come together here but that would, 
that would um, not have worked very well. So we use time, the existence of which you cannot deny on this level of existence, I call it the horizontal level. On this level, time is everywhere and it's all-consuming. So when I talk about the transcendence of time, I'm talking about a different state of consciousness that we could call the vertical state as opposed to the horizontal state. And the vertical state of consciousness is realized, for example, when the stream of thinking subsides for a moment and there's a gap. One thought has come to an end, the other thought has not arisen yet. And there's, there's a gap of... Was that it? Is that the mind? Yeah. <laughs> there is no was in it. There is no will be in it. So, the secret to the realization of the awakened state is to find the gap between thoughts, the cessation of the otherwise compulsive, involuntary, even obsessive movement of thought. Always somewhere else. And then presence, suddenly you become aware of the now. The vertical dimension opens up, the stream of thinking subsides. It doesn't matter for how long, you don't need to measure it. But it, even to have a glimpse of the possibility of being conscious without the interference of thought, that is an amazing realization. Even if it's just three seconds, five seconds, don't, don't count it. <laughs> Just the gap. Now, what is that? At first, it seems to be just an absence, an absence of thought, a kind of, some people might say, a blank state or something like that. But not, it's better not to attach labels to it, but to verify for yourself what that is and who or what you are, because most humans, when they're still unawakened, we call that unconscious, by the way, the world is still full of unconscious humans. It doesn't mean they're all asleep. It means they're totally identified with the mind. They derive their sense of self from the narratives they continuously occur in the thinking mind. An entire story builds up over the years, starting in early childhood, and this, this narrative in the mind that is certain repetitive thought patterns, that th those become the core of the egoic state of consciousness, the, the personality.
So that's what many people call that my life. They refer to something they call my life. And for most people, my life is problematic and not all that pleasant. When I look back on my life, there are many things that I should have done differently or shouldn't have happened or were done to me by other unconscious people, but I probably don't call them unconscious, I call them horrible beings. Ex-husbands and ex-wives, horrible, horrible. And they did something to me, and there's a story, you remember this, that story, you tell yourself and others, and you identify with all kinds of things in your life. Identify means you derive your sense of self from them. But all that is a, these are mental representations of things. Let's say if your egoic sense of self is derived to a large extent, as it is for so many people, derived from, from things that you possess. Maybe it means you possess more things than other people. Then you derive your sense of self from things, cars, houses, maybe private jets, and then your ego has that, great. But what does it really mean? You identify with things, but it's not really the things. It's the, the mental representation of the thing, because you can only experience things in your, in your consciousness. So even the, the, the car that you identify with is ultimately a thought form that you identify with. So when people identify with possessions, it looks like external things, but the external things are represented in your mind as thought forms. So you're still identified with thought. No matter what you identify with, another very uh, common identification that virtually everybody has to some extent is your physical body. That's the most obvious thing that you derive your sense of self from, which means identify. So this is the physical body. And for many people, physical body is a more important source of their sense of self than possessions. So it varies, or it's a mixture of things. But physical body obviously is important for most people. And identification with the body is always a form of ego. In conventional terms, you think of ego as something that says, I am the greatest. And of course, that can also happen. If your body is better looking than most other bodies, most obviously, especially if you're young, the ego uses that in order to feed on that image. It's ultimately, again, it's not the body. It's the mental image of body. Everything that you experience, you experience as a mental image. Philosophers have discussed whether there's actually anything out there at all. <laughs> Let's not go too far into that matrix, but it's undeniable that you experience everything as a mental image, and even your body, you experience your body as a mental representation that you call my body. And then you mentally you compare your body in order to use it in the service of your self-image. You have to compare it to others. And then it, if you're lucky, 
Your body is stronger or better looking than most other bodies. And then your ego uses that. It doesn't have to look so much for possessions, although we do like possessions too, but it can focus a lot on the superiority of body that's stronger and better looking than others. The ego loves that. But there are many people who don't have that because their body isn't stronger or better looking than others. And then you get the opposite. On the one hand, you have the body is a source of pride or the body is a source of shame. The body is not as weaker, not as good looking as, you're not happy with it at all. And that becomes a source of suffering. And then you have a body image that is a negative kind becomes its source of suffering. And for many people, there are probably more people for whom the, their body image creates suffering than for whom their body image creates pride. If your body is so great, then it's, it's really, as you grow older and your sense of self was derived from body identification, there's, there's a lot of suffering that's going to happen to you because the body is not going to last. And gradually, it is attacked by something very dreadful, a dreadful disease. It's called time. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. And time is going to gradually do something to your body. And if you were identified for the first 30 years of your life, for whatever years, with your body, and then the body is no longer that great because it begins to develop imperfections. Time does that. So we cannot deny the existence of time on the horizontal level. Time is not only, it's not only promises fulfillment on the level of the person. That's all fine. Time, you need time to do things, everything. You need time to even make a cup of tea. It takes time, time. And you look to time for some kind of liberation from a state of dissatisfaction in the present moment that you don't like. So you look to time. One day I'm going to make it. One day I'm going to start living. And that's a weird idea that actually many people have, not perhaps consciously verbalized, but underlying that feeling, I, one day I'm going to start living. And then we finally reach retirement. And you thought retirement was going to be it uh, because you realized nothing much is happening. 
but retirement, then I'll be free. No, you won't. You will still be trapped in your mind, because the only freedom is the disidentification from the thinking mind. So identification with body leads to ultimately suffering. Either you suffer even when you're young, because because the, your body is not as great as other people's, or not as good looking. I had that when I was young. I wasn't happy with my body, and uh, but what can you do? So I had an unhappy identification with the body. So I had to look for other things for my ego. <laughs> well, th there was some ego in the dissatisfaction with the body. I have a body that's not great. Oh, I don't like it. I don't. And then some people, I don't like myself. They're so identified. They call the body my, my, myself. I don't like myself. But I, I looked then for other things, happier identifications. And eventually I found things in intellectual pursuits. I realize I'm not stronger than other people. I don't have more possessions than other people. Okay. I don't have more past identity in the sense of belonging to some aristocratic lineage family that goes back 500 years that I can say, oh, I am the descendant of uh, the Earl of so-and-so, and then goes, well, my family goes back to 600 years or a thousand years, and that gives you a wonderful sense of just a, It's an fiction in your mind, but, but it, it can sustain the ego. In some countries, that is still uh, important. I lived in England for many years, so that, that kind of thing still kind of uh, exists there, not as much as before. But again, I was in England. I have no, nothing in my past to be, in my family past to be particularly proud of. All I can remember is my grandmother, but nothing beyond that. They have all disappeared into nothingness. My ancestors. <laughs> I don't have. I didn't have pictures of my ancestors on my walls. Just one or two fading photographs. So that didn't work either. But finally, my ego found something. Intellectual pursuits. I, I was reading books and beginning to talk knowledgeably about things. And finally, I could identify with me as knowing more than other people, as an intellectual. And that provided some food for the ego for some years, but the ego became increasingly unhappy even with that, as it usually does. So the ego usually identifies the things you have, the things you can do, or things you know, but whatever you do, it's not going to be satisfying for very long. In the case of body, it could be satisfying for a few decades, and then you suffer unless you find something beyond that limited sense of self. Body identification, possessions, all kinds of other things that are what other people think of you. You take that on starting childhood, your parents, what your parents tell you about yourself, you absorb that. What society tells you about who you are, whether you are a success or failure, again, it's narratives in your mind that tell you something. So, what is a success in life? How do you determine 
whether your life is a success or not? Are you looking to the world to tell you whether you are a success or not? That's very misleading because to a large extent, the world is insane. And so if you're looking to the world to tell you whether your life is a success, it's probably not correct because all the things that the world says are the marks of success are actually not. And many of these people, if not most of these people, who have achieved the things that the world tells you are, the, are worth striving for, fame, wealth, power, all those things do not fulfill you for long. In fact, they can make you even more unhappy. That's not it. That is not it. The only success is conscious, whether you are conscious or not. At least is consciousness emerging in or through you. That's why you're here. You're the bringer of consciousness into this dimension. It's not your consciousness, something that comes through you. It wants to come through you. You are not doing it. You just have to allow it to come through you. It's not a doing. The awakening is something that is better it's better to define it as to allow the awakening to happen through you rather than to want to make it happen or regarding it as an achievement, an achievement, because that could happen. The ego is very clever and subtle. As you awaken spiritually, it can at any stage almost still come in through the back door and claim credit. And it does that by creating another mental concept of who or what you are. And it then says, I am awakened. I am, I am, I am enlightened. Me, I, I have achieved it. And you can see how it's a concept. Perhaps there has been some change in you, but then the, the mind gets in there and misinterprets it, and it claims credit. Me And so before you know it, another conceptual identity has arisen in your mind, and you're trapped in ego again. And there are some people who are stuck somewhere on the trajectory of spiritual awakening, they are trapped somewhere along the way, and at that point, the ego came in. <laughs> and at that point, the ego claimed credit, and a big spiritual ego developed. If you have enough discernment, you can kind of to see it, uh, somehow detect it. So usually, they will tell you what's wrong with you immediately. They'll tell you what, what uh, you need to do. They, I'm going to heal you now. Let me, I'll heal you. Uh, I know all the answers. But it's, it's very subtle. You need to be very careful that you do not get trapped in another conceptual identity. And again, a conceptual identity is based on thought. It's a narrative in your mind, a story that you tell yourself. And this is very subtle. 
you begin to realize that there is a consciousness that is arising in you that is deeper or higher than the thinking mind, and that's wonderful. So you need to be very alert so that the thinking mind doesn't come in and says, that's me. So spiritual egos are sometimes more difficult to detect than the, the more obvious forms of ego. The more obvious form of ego is the person who is uh, driving his Ferrari, and it, Ferrari is very noisy. It's supposed to be noisy because it's supposed to draw attention to me. So you, you drive a Ferrari, it's, it's, it's red too, it's red. <laughs> and, and so you, and a very noisy engine, and you're looking around, are they looking at me? Yes, they are. Okay, uh, that is a very obvious ego. And then let's say the Ferrari driver goes through to some talks by Eckhart Tolle, and then he suddenly realizes that he was completely identified with his possessions. Oh my God, completely, I was so unconscious. And then he sells his Ferrari, and he, he gets a bicycle. <laughs> and that sounds great, so that's at least not making that much noise anymore, or pollution too. Then suddenly this ex-Ferrari owner finds himself on a bicycle, and then next to him some other Ferrari draws up, and he says, oh, look at this unconscious person. Uh, 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 completely in his ego, God. Whereas I am, I have transcended all that. So if you, if you identify it again with that, you haven't transcended. If you no longer have a mental conceptual image of me as being superior in some way to somebody, to others. The, the ego needs superiority. Even the most miserable ego is miserable because through its misery it achieves some kind of superiority. It's an imagined superiority. It's all imagined. So even the very miserable ego will say, for example, I have been treated unfairly, more unfairly than any other human by God, the universe, whatever, been treated so unfairly that I am more miserable than you. I'm certainly more miserable than you. You should just listen to me, I'll tell you my story. <laughs> or is my dad who he had a big ego for a long time until he reached old age. In his old age, my dad's ego's big chunks broke off his ego, but other chunks didn't break off. So whenever somebody said he was still trapped in his ego completely, whenever somebody said, I, I have a headache, you'd say, you have a headache? I've had a headache for weeks. <laughs> and I don't even talk about it. I just, uh, the ego needs superiority. Victim identity is something that needs to be mentioned here. It's another form of ego. I am not implying that certain people uh, have not been treated well by other people in this world, because the world is full 
of unconscious people and unconscious people are very dysfunctional and they create suffering for themselves and others. The world is full, parents, certain social groups. Many people have been treated, well, virtually everybody is, in some way or another has been treated badly by one person or group of people, or some much more than others. There's no denying that if you, let's say, if you were abused as a child, there's no denying that you were a victim of a very deeply unconscious person. The problem arises if your sense of identity continues to be derived from the mental image of you as the victim. It's not that you deny that these bad things happen. Of course they happened. You see it clearly. But do you use that memory or the, the imprint of that and derive your sense of self from that? This, this is what we call victim identity, and it is a trap. It is a terrible trap to be, find yourself in. And it's, it has its attraction because it can give you a very strong sense of self, but it's ego too. That also is a form of ego. That also is an egoic identity. So there's a huge difference between recognizing that these things happened to you in the past, but at the same time be present enough so that you are not forced to derive your identity from the idea of you as a victim, which is a mental concept. So that's very important. Now, some people even, there are even some people in this world who imagine themselves to be victims. Yes, there are many who actually were victims in actuality. <laughs> but because it's such a wonderful source of ego enhancement, victim identity, you even come up with it. So the ego can come up with fictional stories and, and call, call yourself a victim. So be careful. If there's anybody here who feels angry about what I've said, then that's something for you to look at. But I'm not a victim. How dare you suggest that? I, I haven't said that you bad things did not necessarily happen to you. It's your sense of self. Is there, do you derive your sense of self from that and its ego? So conceptual identities, transcending that. Conceptual identities, they all operate on the horizontal dimension of life. And obviously, you continue to have some identification with your form. I use the expression form identity. Your form identity is your body, your function in this world, you have a particular function, your social function in this world. Your form identity has to do with your relationships. Your form identity is here. It's a psychological form of you, the, the personality, the conditioned personality, the, the conditioning of your mind from the past. So it's a physical form and psychological form. Everybody has one.
that's undeniable. To some extent, that continues. You have a form identity. But the question is, is that all there is to who you are? Are you existing exclusively on that level, which is the horizontal level? Or are you able to go deeper and discover a deeper identity or sense of self that is beyond the form, the psychological forms and the physical forms? That is, oh, I call that the, your essence identity. So it is your most vital, the most vital task in this lifetime for you is the discovery, or we could say realization, of your essence identity, beyond the form identity. The form identity then, although it remains, there's still some identification, but it, it, it's not your main source of identity. We begin to have a so somewhat detached, even playful relationship with all the stuff in your life, including your personality. You're no longer trapped. You still have a personality, but there's something beyond that, and you can be, you are rooted in that. Then the personality happens still on the surface level of your being, it still does its things, has certain idiosyncrasies and characteristics, it's been conditioned by the past, that's fine, but there is something else, the transcendent consciousness has arisen that is beyond the personality. And that is the liberation from the personality. This means liberation from the personality is liberation from identification with the personality. So the personality remains, but there's no longer identification with it. It's just things that, the way in which you operate in this world. And the essence identity is, it arises out of the vertical dimension. And the portal into the vertical dimension is always the present moment. And the vertical dimension is there when the stream of thinking subsides, conscious presence remains. Stream of thinking subsides, conscious presence remains. And this conscious presence may at first be perceived as just an absence of something, this kind of nothing there. Sometimes a word that I use to point to it, I used many different words to point to it. One word I use to point to that dimension is stillness. Stillness refers to an inner state. Silence externally is the absence of noise. Stillness is an internal state of absence of thought. Silence, absence of noise, stillness, absence of mental noise, <laughs> which is thought. And this is a great experiment. If I invite you to come into the present moment, and when you're, when you're fully 
in the present moment, what does that even mean? You might say, some of you who are not yet quite awakening, come into the present moment. Come into the present moment is, for most people, it's initially a heightened awareness of the world around you through sensory perception. So, to come into the present moment is a stepping out of the stream of thinking and be more conscious of sensory perception. So, you, one could say you come to your senses. There's a huge difference between being absorbed in the stream of thinking, all your consciousness is continuously gobbled up by thought, one thought after another. And people walk through the world. There are many people in this world who kind of are almost continuously in that mind-absorbed, self-absorbed state. They're not really here because they're always thinking about something else. Or if they're not thinking about something else, they're labeling what they're perceiving now. Some kind of judgment. And usually it's negative more than positive because that treats the ego much more. If you dislike somebody, it feeds the ego much more than liking somebody. Or remembering an unpleasant event, that memory, you can dwell on that for hours. Somebody was rude to you yesterday, you can dwell on that for hours. But if you saw a beautiful sunset yesterday, it's unlikely that you would think about that for hours on end. That was such a beautiful sunset. But somebody was rude to you and you think, okay, what, I should have said that, that would have been great. And you, you can dwell on that and again and again, play out alternative scenarios and, and feel more and more worked up about it emotionally. And that imagine accumulation of that kind of, that state of consciousness, things accumulate over the years. And then you have a personality that is predominantly unhappy a grievance looking for a cause. And so you look at the whole of the world through the veil of your conditioned mind. Not there. And then you come to your senses and you're suddenly in awareness. And now you notice when you become aware of your surroundings through sensory perception, you cannot really be aware of it fully if you're continuously interpreting what you're perceiving. This is habitual for most people. They have to attach labels to their, to their sense perceptions. They hear something, then, oh, that's, that, that's, uh, I wonder what kind of a bird that, where does that sound go? And they say, oh, that's a nice flower. I wonder what that's called. Uh, I wish I had that in my garden. I want to see where they sell these flowers. Oh, that reminds me of the flower that last year somebody gave me, wasn't it, yeah? Oh, isn't that beautiful? It looks like a painting by so-and-so, doesn't it? Yes, sir. But then now looks like the next thing. You're not really the... There's still a veil of continuous interpretation, which is a conditioned mind. For full sensory perception, the thinking mind needs to step aside. And then... The two ingredients for sensory perception, whether it's visual, auditory, tactile, whatever, the two ingredients are 
that which is being perceived and the awareness that makes the perception possible, which is consciousness. So when you look at a flower, or a, I'm, I'm mentioning natural things, somehow easier with the natural things, but anything could be used for that. The entirety of this room, for example, there's this room, and you're aware of it, and there's this man sitting on a chair, talking, the lights, and you're conscious of, you're aware of that, but not labeling it. You're aware, and there's perception happening. So you're not perceiving anymore as a person, you're perceiving as consciousness, as presence. And that's an amazing shift. To the ego, it doesn't seem anything, it doesn't know what to do with that the thinking mind, but it's an amazing shift, it's very subtle, but it's very important and quite profound when suddenly you are able to perceive without compulsive interpretation or labeling. Try it out in nature, wherever you may be in nature, look at a tree and look at it let go of thought. If it wants to come in, it's not interested. And then just sounds, hear sounds, whatever sounds arise. At night, perhaps, you awake in bed, and there's certain sounds, it doesn't matter what. Don't label, don't even dis differentiate between good and bad sounds. That's just, that is. That's the beginning of being present. For many people, it starts with heightened sensory perception. So sensory perception can help you come into the present moment, be present. But then the next step, one could say, is very important. When you perceive in that way, and that's kind of innocent perception, like it's a how a one-year-old child would perceive something, because the child doesn't have the concepts yet to label things. Unless you become like little children, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is a state of consciousness. But you're not regressing to the pre-conceptual state that a child is in, the pre-egoic state that a one-year-old is in, you are rising above the egoic state. You rise above the thinking structure. Instead of being pre-egoic and pre-thought, you are now post-egoic or post-thought. But there are certain similarities in the, the pre and the post. And in both cases, the conceptual mind is not operating. But in the post-egoic, post-thought state, the thinking mind can and will operate, but it is no longer dysfunctional and it is no longer self-serving. You don't derive your sense of self from it. It can be a worry. It becomes just a tool through which consciousness can express itself as a tool 
it becomes a servant, but it is not a master anymore when you're trapped in it. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Eckhart Tolle, Essential Teachings, the podcast. You can follow these essential teachings on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you haven't yet, go to Spotify and follow this podcast. Join us next week for more enlightened teachings from Eckhart Tolle. Thank you for listening. Dogs are an important part of our lives, and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. That's why you got to check out NextGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. NextGuard Plus chews provide one-and-done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease. Plus, it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef-flavored, soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NextGuard Plus chews. They're the one-and-done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Use with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurologic disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting a preventive. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30.